what do you tend to prioritize when, when considering trade-offs? Do you look hard at security? Do you look really hard at maintainability long-term and readability? Are you really like looking deep into gas, like gas golfing and gas optimizations because you know this is going to be used so much and you know a lot of things are going to be interacting with L1 Ethereum, but we'd love to understand how you process different trade-offs like that. For us, uh, security is always the highest priority. It doesn't matter if your contract is fast, if, it's, if it gets hacked, like we need, it's, it's by far the highest priority. So everything else is kind of uh, secondary to that. After that, I would say code, this balance between code readability and sort of gas golfing, where uh, you, we would usually do a first pass where you kind of like code everything out such that it, it's the sort of the nicest for a code readability and stuff like that. Then you would uh, do sort of a second pass where you're looking for uh, very hot paths. We don't we don't optimize overly everything. You more like identify where something's going to be used. Let's just say the the transfer function on an ERC twenty very heavily used. So you would heavily 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 uh, optimize that uh, for gas usage. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of how I look at that usually. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Devs Do Something podcast. Today's guest is Sam McPherson, a protocol engineer with the MakerDAO engineering team. In this episode, we talk through a variety of really fascinating topics related to how Maker approaches their engineering process. And we specifically get into some of Sam's thoughts, Sam's thoughts on smart contract development, security, and his work with multi-chain Maker. So we go through things like Maker Teleports, bringing real-world assets on chain with Maker and some of the technical considerations in doing so. We walk through how Sam has educated himself about some non-technical items that have been relevant to his work uh, with the Maker team, including how to manage risk properly. Uh, he's learned a lot from some of his teammates over in the Maker ecosystem, and we call out a few particularly helpful resources in the episode for those that are curious. We also talk through some of Sam's favorite smart contract design patterns. We walk through... Uh, how the team has approached naming conventions. We've walked through what their specific processes for shipping new features. And we get Sam's thoughts on things like inheritance, security, and just how to be a good smart contract developer in general. So if you write Solidity, if you're interested in becoming a really good protocol developer, this episode is going to be great for you because you're going to learn from one of the best devs in the space, working on one of the most highly regarded and high-quality teams in this space. I hope you enjoy. All right, so we're here with Sam. Welcome, Sam. Hey, it's good to be here. Good to have you. Good to have you. So we'll get into a lot of different technical topics later, particularly around your work at Maker, some of the multi-chain things you guys are up to. Uh, and and more, but the first question we like to ask on these podcasts are, you know, how did you get involved with Web three and and Ethereum development? Yeah, okay. Uh, so I first kind of got involved in crypto in the I came in in the 2017 bull run, uh, just sort of as a passive investor looking around for interesting stuff. So. ETH was sort of the first thing I uh, gravitated towards, and then just in exploring sort of the Ethereum uh, blockchain, I stumbled across Maker in uh, January 2018. 
Um, I thought it was the most interesting project uh, at the time. Uh, so at that time, still just sort of a passive investment, um, but I just was quietly learning about it uh, over several years. Um, just yeah, the silent observer uh, type in the community forums and stuff like that. Uh, and then, you know, I just took a more active role as I uh, sort of understood things and uh, there were sort of more options available to uh, like tweak in governance and stuff like that. We could actually make decisions in the DAO. Um, and then sort of this culminated in me learning, uh, so I'm a programmer by trade. So uh, previously I've done video game development. So I decided to pick up uh, Solidity and smart contract development in August, 2020, and just started contributing to the project. Um, and then shortly after that, uh, I was invited to join the DAO protocol engineering team uh, as it was incepted, so, or initiated. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I love it. So a lot of your work, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong on, on this assumption, I'm just going based off of recent talks you've given and some of your public content, but it seems like you've been involved in some of Maker's multi-chain efforts. Um, can yes. you walk us through some of the vision and strategy behind multi-chain Maker, and then we'll dive into some specific areas of that afterwards? Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, that's the area that I'm most focused on right now is uh, get basically um, getting the accounting and sort of the vault engine and all this kind of stuff uh, going uh, multi-chain. Specifically, we're starting with uh, L2s. So uh, what this basically looks like is that when we are sort of uh, finished um, with the initial rollout uh, with Maker Vaults and stuff like that, you'll be able to, say, um, go on Oasis uh, and then... Uh, you know, go on on optimism for your chain, and then you'll be able to maybe take a loan out against uh, your OP tokens or something like that. You'll be able to mint die there that is uh, fungible with uh, L1 Ethereum die. Um, so that is the primary effort. And um, you know, once we get there, we'll be able to have all the uh, features uh, attached to Maker beyond just the Vault engine, such as the peg stability modules and the uh, D3M and stuff like that. Nice. And in doing a bit of research on how this architecture looks, my understanding, and please correct this if it's wrong, is that you have obviously like the main master maker instance on Ethereum L1, and then you have these other sub instances on separate side chains and layer twos. And the idea is that there is a bit of a separation of concerns where you have maybe not all of the risk for the entire maker, eco maker ecosystem exposed on Optimism or Avalanche or another sidechain. Instead, it's these separate instances designed to keep the risk central, not centralized, but decentralized to these separate environments. And things are built in that way. Is that a correct summarization of how that works? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Maker, uh, first and foremost, we need to protect uh, die holders, protect the protocol. So everything we do, every sort of collateral we onboard or go to some chain or something like that, uh, we need to set debt ceilings so that in a worst case scenario, it won't destroy the entire project. We will just have to sort of take a loss. Um, and so for, yes, this master-slave kind of separation, uh, Ethereum is the source of truth for everything. Maker is anchored on Ethereum. So you can kind of uh, view it as, uh, and especially with gas prices getting higher and higher, it's less going to be sort of retail users using uh, Maker uh, master instance. and and more so on these uh, L2s and side chains and stuff like that. And then you look at uh, Maker on L1 as sort of a settlement layer where we basically just 
need to periodically uh, adjust the accounting uh, to make sure that it matches uh, what's going on on uh, L2s and sidechains uh, to win within some like a reasonable time frame, basically. Got you. And then, are what other than the debt ceilings? Are there any other major differences in the instances of Maker on these separate sidechains that are off of L1 Ethereum? I would love to understand how the actual like like what the what the specifics of the contract architecture looks like if you're if you're willing to share that. Uh, yeah, so it is actually pretty much a duplicate of uh, L1 Maker. So that's what we're kind of aiming for because we have so much uh, like legacy code that we've uh, built and heavily audited and stuff like that. We don't want to have to rebuild everything. So uh, you can think of it just sort of, yeah, there are some subtle differences, but to the end users, it's just a complete duplication of uh, Maker on these chains. But the difference is it's not like we can just sort of uh, deploy sort of an isolated instance uh, because we want the, the whole point of makers basically die as the product. We want the die to be fungible with L1. So if we were to deploy an isolated instance, it would be like an entirely new uh, version of die, and we don't want that. So there's a lot of time and effort that has to go in to make sure that uh, we the die on these other chains is it's not exactly fully fungible, but it's like for all practical purposes, it is fungible to the users. Mm-hmm. And this is actually an interesting segue into your work on Maker Teleport, right? So Maker Teleport, I guess, you know, can you can you just explain what Maker Teleport is and how it fits into this, this vision of making dive fungible across every single environment? Yeah, so uh, Maker Teleport is a new product offering uh, that we have attached onto uh, the Maker Core. Um, and the idea is that um, as we sort of extend uh, uh, debt ceilings to these chains and stuff, uh, we can use the uh, Maker Oracle network, uh, which we are already trusting to provide price feeds and stuff like that, to basically attest to events that have occurred on other chains. So with Maker Teleport, basically users will be able to um, burn their, say, let's say you're on Arbitrum, you want to go to Optimism, right? Uh, if you were to do this during using the native bridges, uh, you would have to wait uh, seven days at least uh, for the uh, fraud window on Arbitrum to go to L1 and then back up to L2. Maker Teleport skips this entire thing. You basically uh, send off an event on Arbitrum, uh, burn your die, um, and then so the Oracle network watches for this event and they can see, okay, this user has said that they want to transfer, say, 100 die from Arbitrum to Optimism. I've seen that, uh, it's, it's all good. They then provide uh, attestations to that user, which then they can go onto the uh, version of Teleport on Optimism and request to mint that 100 die, which will later be settled uh, using uh, our, our sort of bulk settlement uh, construct that will settle it out on uh, Ethereum L1 later. Gotcha, so are there like, Basically, every time I'm interacting with Maker Teleport, I'm interacting with that master instance effectively on L1 Ethereum, right? Which is saying, all right, mint die on this extra chain, burn die on the main chain. And that's how some of this is actually being processed from chain to chain and managing liquidity. Is that is that accurate? Uh, so you actually don't interact with L1 at all. And this is kind of the goal, right? Uh, you mm-hmm. can view L1. I don't know if you've ever played that game as a kid where you're jumping between the couches and the floors lava. Think of Ethereum as lava. You don't want to touch it if you're a user, right? You need you just want to jump purely from one chain to the other. So you'll be interacting entirely sort of with the slave instances and uh, emitting uh, events there. So 
uh, yeah, the only, the, basically the protocol is what, uh, will bulk settle sort of the actual underlying accounting at a later date. Um, but with, um, maker teleport, you're essentially, um, taking a loan out on optimi optimism, which is, uh, it's backed by the guarantee that in the future, the, uh, die will move, uh, from the Arbitrum escrow on L1 to the Optimism escrow on uh, L1. Gotcha. Yeah. Fran from our team at Superfluid loves to say that L1 is lava. Uh, it's yeah. like his favorite <laughs> thing. So he's going to be pumped that you just said that. Uh, okay. So you know, if I'm thinking of bridging in this like other paradigm, right, with like like connects and stuff, right, I'm, you know, if they're using an optimistic bridge, right, I have an idea of what that exact transaction flow looks like. Uh, Rahul, the CTO at Connects, actually came on here and walked through that specific transaction lifecycle. So it might be good just to juxtapose that. You already you already kind of went through some of this, but it'd be good if you wouldn't mind just talking through like the exact lifecycle of a transaction in which, let's say I want to bridge 100 Dion Arbitrum to Optimism. Like, can you walk through like step-by-step step what that would look like? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so there's kind of two parts. There's the user part um, that uses the Oracle network, and that doesn't touch Ethereum. But then there's sort of the later uh, settlement part, uh, which sort of updates the accounting on L1. So uh, what are bridges? And like, you know, bridge is kind of an overloaded term. I, like we, I kind of uh, separate them into what I call more uh, messaging layer bridges, which would be something like Nomad, uh, Optimistic Bridge. Um, or, you know, various other bridge providers. Uh, um, and so actually an example of the uh, a messaging bridge is the rollup itself, which is the highest security bridge you can possibly have um, because it's like integrated with how the rollup works in and of itself. So what Maker does, uh, our, our bridging system uh, is more of like at the application layer where we can just hook it onto any sort of uh, arbitrary message passing bridge. Um, and so for the rollups, we will always use the native message passing bridge because we want the messages, uh, we want the highest sort of security when we're uh, extending debt ceilings out to these rollups. And so the na native messaging bridge is, is a natural fit there. I mean, of course, the downside is that there's this seven day uh, delay for uh, optimistic rollups. So um, to get into the, the message flow, we kind of use two messaging bridges. So we'll do settlement on the native bridge, but for the user side, we're using the Oracle network. It's sort of the simplest possible design of a, of a, a, a messaging bridge, which is a completely trusted one. We completely trust the Oracle network to tell us like they can sign whatever they want technically, but uh, we need to sort of uh, trust them collectively that they will not do this. Um, so, yeah, but since the, the uh, maker system as a whole kind of relies on these Oracle networks, uh, this Oracle network to provide the price feeds, the um, trust assumptions are roughly the same for uh, maker teleport. So, um, so I went through the user part, uh, I guess uh, the settlement part, uh, I can go over that quickly. So what that looks like, let's say um, I have a user and I've transferred my 100 die from Arbitrum to Optimism. Uh, there is now, uh, Delta between uh, the L1 side of these escrows, which contains the backing die for the L2, there is now a hundred die difference between these that in the Arbitrum one that should move to the Optimism one. So 
once a day or something like that, we will have a keeper call the uh, Arbitrum uh, bridge and say, hey, there's like a hundred die that needs to move from Arbitrum to Optimism uh, escrow. And so that will send a message through the native messaging bridge down to L1. And we're in a seven day delay there. And it will move that 100 uh, actual primary die on L1 from one escrow to the other and sort of uh, settling out the accounting there. What kind of delay does this look like for the user? Um, so, you know, a user um, you know, wants to bridge from Arbitrum to Optimism. Like you have this uh, sort of finality, right, that comes with the bridges. But is this something that, um, you yeah, basically like a user can use, you know, within seconds or, or what, what does that delay look like? Uh, yeah, we're looking at sort of on the order of like seconds to a minute. Yeah, with, within a few minutes is sort of the time frame that we're looking at. Because uh, again, it's sort of the simplest design um, for uh, messaging bridges, which is just sort of just trusting uh, the Oracle. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's just very simple to sort of uh, get, get finality and stuff like that. That's interesting. We were um, something that we've kind of been experimenting with a little bit is, you know, kind of using these message passing protocols to allow people to, uh, you know, create streams across chains. Um, and this was one of the this is one of the big issues is that, you know, if you if you go through something like, um, you know, originally we were experimenting with uh, Nomad, right? And like, if you go through the Nomad bridge, it's like I think a fifty minute um, time, right? And so we were kind of thinking like, how can we shorten that for the user? Because I mean, it's just it's not good UX, right? For a user to create a stream or like, okay, wait, wait an hour, you know, come back and yeah, you know, hopefully it'll be across by then, right? I like that idea a lot that you can kind of just, you know, do this sort of optimistically, right? Like trust that, uh, you know, your your Oracle network is going to do the right thing. Definitely have to look into it more. Yeah, and I'd like to add, so for this UX kind of trade-off, we've been sort of investigating uh, strategies for, you know, if you're moving 100 die. It's it get like one or two Oracle signers is probably sufficient. It's not like uh, it's not a huge amount, so we don't need a huge amount of security on it. Um, so maybe something similar uh, for your guys, like if you're doing small amounts, maybe it makes sense to use uh, just sort of a trusted Oracle, and then for larger amounts, you can kind of uh, shift more into uh, uh, like using the actual optimistic bridge design, where you have this uh, 50 minute delay, but then you get like like stronger uh, guarantees kind of thing. So yeah, we've been looking at this as well. Yeah, that, that'd be really interesting, kind of creating a, a risk framework, right? Like the, the greater the amount you want to send, then kind of the more security. That, that's cool. I really like that. Yeah. Nice. So I want to come back to some other things related to like how you guys have actually gone about developing this and what some of your development cycles look like. I mean, obviously working in a DAO in some ways might be a little different than working in like a traditional big tech company for shipping new features and things like this. There are a lot of components at, at, at play in something like this. But one thing I wanted to also veer into on more of like the, the product side, new feature side, roadmap side for Maker is Maker's foray into real world assets uh, beyond just the pure DeFi ecosystem. Um, can you enlighten our listeners on what some of the early plans are for real world assets and maker and, and what that might look like in the near future? Yeah, so I mean, that's already uh, kind of uh, getting started and ramping up now. So uh, I believe we had our first real world asset onboarding um, last year. Uh, I forget exactly when it was last year, but uh, we had uh, this company, uh, Success, um, which is taking out loans and uh, they're uh, basically an arranger. They're lending it out to other parties and stuff like that. 
um, as well as uh, Centrifuge. They're a pretty well-known uh, real-world asset uh, company, and so we'll issue them loans, and then they'll go out and loan to the end borrowers and stuff like that. Uh, more recently, we've had some uh, larger deals come through uh, with specifically Huntington Valley Bank and um, uh, Societe Generale in France. And these are very reputable large banks that we've been just sort of uh, issuing issuing loans to. Uh, the HVB one is uh, at 100 million loaned out. So they're a bank, you know, this is their business. They're very good at this kind of stuff. So we just kind of uh, we'll issue them a line of credit and then they can do what they do best in sort of, uh, you know, making a return on that uh, with all the de- detail in uh, real life. So, yeah, that's been uh, coming along on multiple fronts. Uh, we've also been looking at um, using uh, our, our sort of D3M module, which is basically like die liquidity injection into other protocols, uh, investigating, integrating with this, uh, with, with uh, projects like um, Maple and TruFi, as well as Centrifuge. Um, so, the, yeah, this has sort of been progress, progressing on multiple fronts. And I guess another thing I'll add is uh, we've we've actually just had a recent uh, uh, proposal come from Coinbase uh, Institutional where they are um, wanting to take 1.6 billion loan and then uh, start uh, investing that into things as well. So, yeah, there's lots, lots going on here. That's awesome. Yeah, it's one of the, like, in my opinion, more encouraging and exciting developments, especially right now, like, like uh, bottom bottom of bear market times. It's good to see these kinds of things, right? I think makers, you guys have been a leader in the, in this kind of space for a while. But something that our listeners might particularly be interested in, in learning about, right? We have a very developer centric audience, right? It's called Devs Do Something. Um, mm. A lot of people who are technical see most problems through a technical lens, right? People know that real world assets and things like that moving into DeFi could be a a massive market. And a lot of developers might look at that through a purely developer oriented lens. I think that there's a lot more to this than just like technical specs, right? But are there any interesting technical considerations when it comes to supporting real world assets on Maker? Yeah, and I mean, I actually, I come from sort of the similar developer background. Um, I'm learning a lot of sort of the more, uh, you know, traditional finance type stuff uh, as I go. Um, so I get I get the need sort of, or at least the desire for having everything in smart contracts. And actually, I think this is a, is a good way to go as much as it's possible. But when you're dealing with the real world, you know, you have to you have to delve into the world, the, the legal world, right? Which is sort of the real world version of uh, smart contracts, right? So bridging these two things is, is basically uh, what we're working to do right now in you know, uh, DeFi as a whole. Um, but the opportunities here are just so huge. And it's, it's like, I'm, I'm in the space to basically change the world. Uh, so in order to do that, we're going to have to get into sort the messy details of integrating with the real world and with all the legalities and stuff like that. And what has that experience been like as someone that comes from a more technical background, diving into this other stuff, right? This, this like messy world of, uh, I don't know how much you're involved with maybe on like the BD side, maybe, maybe there are other people that make her that do more of the BD, but I've, you know, I've seen you like in governance forums and things like that. You, you do participate in, in a lot of those discussions. Um, and also, like you've had to learn probably a lot of legal things, right? To be effective. So, if let, let's imagine you're you're 
you have a group of developers listening to you right now that are maybe elite smart contract developers, but it's time to like really figure out how we can make a product interface with the rest of the world beyond just blockchains. What advice would you have for them for exploring some of these other messy things that aren't just uh, diving into the code? Yeah, I would say um, for me, it's been sort of broadening uh, what is meant by risk and sort of these these calculus with that stuff. So a lot of people, um, or at least some, like sort of view these worst case, we have to prevent against worst case scenarios all the time. And it's just, it's really hard to actually get anything useful done if that's your attitude. So I think to me, it's always like about identifying the risks, sort of weighing how sort of likely worst case scenarios are and, uh, you know, protecting yourself as much as you can with debt ceilings and stuff like that. So this sort of strategy, it's, it's sort of a middle ground strategy. And with risk, there's all kinds of different risks, right? So it's like, uh, if you're even if you're just purely have ETH as collateral or something, you have a, a lending um, lending protocol like Maker or whatever, and you just have ETH as collateral, you know, there, there's risk there, right? There's market risk. You can have a huge price drop in ETH and then, you know, suddenly you're underwater and you have to cover the bad debt. That's just one type of risk. There's counterparty risk where, you know, you're using uh, USDC as your collateral or something, right? And now you're, you have a trusted party. Um, there's legal risk. There's all kinds of, it's all just different kinds of risk. And so to do a technical risk as well, actually, for your developers, uh, yes. So there's always smart contract risk. We need to remember that. Um, so I think it's just important to keep in mind that these are all just risks and they should all just be taken into account into the calculus of, uh, of, of, how much you want to expose yourself to various uh, collateral types and stuff like that. Um, so it's just, yeah, I would say the best advice, get rid of the all or nothing sort of attitude and just sort of take a more nuanced uh, view of things. And I would also recommend uh, learning uh, what sort of is actually backing a lot of the stuff. So like ETH is really easy because it's like, you know, it's intrinsically part of the chain. It's probably the most decentralized asset you can have on Ethereum uh, almost certainly. Um, but understanding every, everything, every other asset sort of at scale, uh, ignoring sort of ERC, low cap ERC 20 tokens, uh, they're also pretty decentralized. Um, the rest of them, the rest of the assets at scale are sort of, uh, you know, they're backed by something usually off chain or there's custodians and stuff like that. And just sort of, uh, identifying, uh, what these are and understanding what the risks are, I think is, is, is helpful. That's really interesting. Managing risk properly and understanding there are more risks than just smart contract risk. That's good advice. Is there anything that you've read or any resources you've found that have been really helpful in thinking through some of these kinds of real world risks? Um, I mean, this industry is so new, so it's not like there's like a go-to resource. I find I just follow um, people who uh, think about this stuff a lot, who are experts in their fields. I just sort of follow them on Twitter and, you know, just read what they put out as much as I can, um, or even just talking to people who, uh, you know, my background is entirely programming. So I, I don't, I don't know what the details of the legal risks even are for uh, within maker, but there's another team working on that. So just talking to them and sort of understanding, uh, you know, just building your own understanding, I think is the best way to do that. 
Totally. Are there any good Twitter followers or individuals in the space that you'd like to call out? Uh, yeah, I would say if you're, if you're interested in sort of this, uh, how to look at all this accounting and banking and stuff like that, uh, Seb, Seb on the, um, uh, strategic finance team, he puts out a lot of posts, uh, like on Twitter and stuff like that. And in the forum, I find it very helpful for sort of, uh, wrapping your head around all this stuff. Um, so I think he has more of a tradfi background and he's connecting it to makers specifically. So, uh, yeah, he would be good. He's a good follow. Yeah, I'll put a link to maybe some of his posts in the show notes for this episode so people can read. Um, okay, so so shifting back into some more of the pure engineering items, what is it like to be working at a protocol that has a lot of, I mean, you guys, everything is open, right? Like, like everything, every decision, uh, every like thought process, it's all open, right? Which is great for people that want to get involved and learn. But I'd imagine that it also can be hard to, to come to consensus on decisions and figure out what to build next. I guess this is a bit of a broad question, and I can, and I can drill that into specifics here. But what does like the development process look like for, say, a new product or thing within the maker ecosystem? Can you enlighten us as to what that might look like? Yeah, so I think the, the general flow of this, the DAO is definitely more of a political beast um, than sort of a traditional uh, company. Um, but it's, it's usually more for arriving at a, you know, consensus on what to do next. Um, so for example, with, with, uh, say the multi-chain roadmap, uh, this was sort of presented as, uh, what, uh, protocol engineering, uh, is, is like sort of a strategy for, uh, going multi-chain and stuff like that. This was presented to governance and governance sort of approves this. And then we can kind of, uh, within our team and the other teams, uh, basically coordinate more like a company like where we uh, have our tasks, uh, they've been approved by governance, and we can sort of just start executing on it like you would uh, any other company. Um, that, that's sort of how it works. Yeah, within my core unit, uh, yeah, it's, it looks very similar to more traditional uh, company. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of separate from the, the DAO a little bit. Um, our, our main uh, Interaction point with the DAO is what's called the core unit facilitator. Uh, this person is responsible for sort of uh, administrative duties, uh, producing reports, transparency, that kind of stuff, and reporting to the DAO. Well, uh, the rest of the team is, you know, a lot of the time just heads down uh, delivering results. Um, and this is similar to for all the other core units. So it's kind of this mix between uh, more traditional company style and the DAO more political style. Nice. And, and within your core unit, right? Let, let's use the example of the multi-chain maker or maker teleport or something like that. What does the development process typically consist of? I mean, I'm assuming you'll get your main directive from the proposal and thing that was passed through the standard governance process. But when it comes to the tactical building of the new contracts, like for example, building those like slave instances that can be deployed on those other chains. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Is this like you have cycles, you have sprints, is it some kind of agile methodology? What is, what does that tend to look like? Yeah. Within my team, uh, it's fairly agile uh, development cycle. Uh, we just sort of uh, usually do a fair bit of research ahead of time. And then if uh, once we settle on sort of a design, uh, we just, start executing. Um, the, the team is is fairly heavily weighted towards senior engineers. So people can like 
fairly well manage their own time. Uh, we don't need sort of as strict uh, sort of structures. So uh, the agile style uh, fits us pretty well. Nice. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I and mean, it is, it probably is helpful to have mostly senior devs on the team. Uh, yeah. I'm sure that does speed things up. I had a question from a team member of ours at Superfluid. You know, I put out some feelers for like, I said, hey, we got Sam coming on. What would you ask him? And a question I got from one of our protocol devs was, when you're thinking about one of these development cycles or you're going through your process, what do you tend to prioritize when, when considering trade-offs, right? Do you, do you look hard at security? Do you look really hard at maintainability long-term and readability? Are you really like looking deep into gas, like gas golfing and gas optimizations because you know this is going to be used so much and you know a lot of things are going to be interacting with L1 Ethereum? I'll, I'll let I'll just let you answer that question as is, but we'd love to understand how you process different trade-offs like that. Yeah, uh, so for us, uh, security is always the highest priority. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if your contract is fast if it's if it gets hacked. Like we need. It's it's by far the highest priority. So everything else is kind of uh, secondary to that. Um, after that, I would say um, code, this balance between code readability and sort of gas golfing, where uh, you, we would usually do a first pass where you kind of like uh, code everything out such that it, it's the sort of the nicest for a code readability and stuff like that. Then you would uh, do sort of a second pass where you're looking for uh, very hot paths. We don't we don't optimize overly everything. Um, you more like identify where something's going to be used, such as say the the transfer function on an ERC twenty very heavily used. So you would heavily 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 uh, optimize that uh, for gas usage. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of how I look at that usually. But everything's a balance. I don't think you should optimize too heavily for anything in particular. Yeah, I think that approach makes sense where you have security that's prioritized, right? We actually had uh, Nicholas Venturo, a, a protocol engineer at, at Balancer on last week. And one of the things he said is that, you know, they've paid out bug bounties before, specifically as a result of being too cute and too crazy with gas golfing, right? Which is, yeah. you know, it, it's hot. It's cool for Twitter, right? It's fun to, it's fun for Twitter, right? But it is, uh, it, it can be dangerous if you're not careful about it. But with the caveat there of saying, all right, yeah, if if someone's going to call, if, if millions of people are going to call transfer over the lifetime of this contract, yes, let's optimize the hell out of the transfer function, right? I, I totally yeah. understand that. How else do you guys look at security? I mean, do you, like... I'm assuming you guys obviously have audit processes and things like that, but do you have any other general advice for smart contract developers on how to think about smart contract security? Uh, yeah, I think um, kind of as an individual, uh, the best thing you can do is just sort of learn uh, what the anti-patterns are and just avoid them. Uh, sort of makers sort of had uh strategy uh, that's kind of been different than a lot of the wider DeFi ecosystem where uh, people often use uh, proxy upgradable contracts and stuff like that. And Maker has been firmly against that uh, from basically day one. Um, and it's like you, you, you find yourself kind of tempted to use this stuff sometimes, but you really, you do need to kind of recognize these as anti-patterns. Sometimes they're useful and I'm not saying never use this stuff. Uh, be aware of like when 
you should use something because it makes sense, even if it is potentially kind of a general anti-pattern. Um, and other things, yeah, just like you need to just identify uh, danger zones, right? Like where you have, say, uh, reentrancy vectors and stuff like that. Um, just really, really be careful and uh, sort of learn what these things are. Um, I mean, part of it, you just kind of learn as you go. I think it's, it's like you can just read a page and, you know, you're good with everything. There's like sort of lessons learned. Maybe reviewing previous hacks is, is a good way to learn about uh, where, where these things come from usually, because a lot of them are fairly uh, sort of similar uh, blunders, I would say, and with the code design, you know. Uh, so yeah, I would I would say that's a, a pretty good strategy in my view. Um, for the team wide stuff, yeah, we go through uh, I would say the best uh, in the industry sort of a review process. It's it's very extensive. Um, like we're developing code for you know <laughs> sometimes years at a time. It's a, it's a very long process, but for good reason. I mean, we're securing. Uh, you know, what is it, 10 billion uh, in assets right now? So, like, we have to go slow, we have to be methodical. Um, we do many, many rounds of team review, uh, many, many rounds of audits, and only when everybody's feeling like we've uh, exhaustively, we're like, we're exhausted, we've reviewed this so much, we're feeling super confident about it. The auditors are super confident about it, like, that's only then we'll ship code. And even then, we'll have them in sort of uh, initial phases with low debt ceilings. Usually, if it's if it's new code, get, to get that sort of uh, Lindy effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that comes down to risk management again, right? Even the the debt ceilings are another, uh, I guess, version of that. But you okay? So jo I saw Josh started smiling. You probably saw Josh smiling when you said we don't have any upgradable contracts. Uh, he's, I, I he's, never said that. I never said that. I said we avoid them. Okay. Correction. <laughs> avoid them. That is probably still somewhat of a controversial take in the space, right? Upgradable contracts are everywhere. We use them as superfluid, right? We, we make use mm -hmm. of that. Um, can you walk through just the methodology for the, the avoiding them? I mean, obviously, there's the thing where like, all right, these are supposed to be immutable, immutable contracts, but I would love to hear the full thought process behind why that's your approach. Uh, yeah. And let me say, I'm not like dogmatic about this. I understand there's use for upgradable contracts in some places uh, and there's there is trade-offs so like if you actually are using an immutable contract uh, such as say the vat it's probably the most core contract in uh, maker uh, you can never upgrade that that is set in stone so uh, we that thing was developed you know back in solidity uh, i think it's even four solidity four um, so it's not optimized like it's just like it's very bulky it's very out of date you know uh, the gas cost is it's huge compared to what it could be if we totally just uh, overhauled it. Um, so that would be what I would consider a downside of not having upgradable uh, proxy contracts. Um, but yeah, and so we've actually used uh, proxy contracts for some uh, more stuff, some stuff where we need to be more nimble. Um, one of our features, which is called the crop join uh, adapter, which is responsible for uh, yield farming, which was introduced after uh, Maker was deployed, uh, basically gives the users who lock their collateral in, they'll they'll get the it'll deposit it into uh, whatever yield farm for that collateral as well, and then give them uh, the rewards for that. Um, that's a new contract, and we developed that with an upgradable proxy be, uh, because integrations can uh, change. So I would say actually for when we are integrating with other protocols. 
Um, I think upgradable proxies kind of make more sense there, um, especially because other people have upgradable proxies. So, uh, you know, implementations can change and stuff like that. Uh, so we need to be able to adapt to that as well. Right. And I think there's, I mean, there's definitely, you know, like you said, there's a place for upgradable contracts. Um, I, I've kind of, I've kind of been making the joke lately that, you know, humans have been writing buggy software for decades, and then somebody had the idea to make them immutable, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there's, there's security benefits. Uh, you know, of course, you can, you know, update things if, if something goes wrong. Um, and then, you know, of course, it, it's good for like rapidly iterating, right? Because that, that's a lot of um, sort of this like tech philosophy is that like, you know, we can, we can rapidly iterate and experiment and try new things, right? And you don't really have that with immutable contracts. Um, but again, it, it is like, I do think it's important to limit it as much as possible as well, right? Because then you end up in these situations where, you know, if, if you want to get to market fast, it, what, what you can do, right, is, is you can kind of put this out in an upgradable proxy. And if something goes wrong, you can try and patch it, right? And I think that's, I think that's responsible for a lot of, a lot of the, um, you know, recent exploits that, that have been happening across the industry as well. Like, obviously, it's not, you know, the sole thing, but I, I think it's really important to, you know, not just move fast and break things when it comes to smart contracts, right? Especially when you have large TVLs, like, I mean, it's especially, especially bridges, right? Those are like, you know, um, non-consensual bug bounties at this point, right? So you want to, um, yeah, I think it's really, really important to like take your time as much as possible. And I, I really like that maker approach of like, you know, you, you build this out and you kind of like iterate and you send it through the team, right? And you get as many eyes on that code as possible. Because I mean, like audits help, right? But like at the end of the day, it really is just getting as many people on it as possible because everybody has a, you know, a sort of different perspective on, um, you know, like they, they, they kind of like have a different eye, right? For, for spotting different issues and, and vulnerabilities. So yeah, I really, I like, I really like, um, and I like hearing about this process. Totally. Yeah. I, I second the move fast and break things, uh, sentiment. It's, it's a bit of an issue here. Um, a couple of other questions specifically like on the technical side, and then we can get to the couple of general things we tend to ask to wrap things up. Another member on our team was looking through your contracts the other day. Again, I let people know that we're going to do this. And one thing that he asked, he's on our developer experience team where he like helps write our tooling and things like that and thinks through how our contracts can be readable to the public and other developers. And one thing he wanted to understand is how your team thinks through naming conventions for contracts that tend to be extremely visible to like the rest of the industry, right? Where, you know, people are going to go in and read it, whether it's auditors or uh, like other individual devs that want to integrate something. Uh, and, and I think it'd be interesting because we have a lot of internal debates about what we should name stuff. <laughs> um, it'd be interesting to understand how you think through that process. Yeah. I mean, the hardest problem in computer science is naming things. <laughs> we all know this. Um so I guess uh, for like very low level uh, contracts and stuff like that, it's usually just the author will come up with a name and, you know, people can check it and be like, oh, yeah, okay, does this sound good? Or, you know, it, it's often whoever's authoring it just uh, comes up with a name and like, okay, it's a good name. We'll just go with it. Um, for more public facing stuff, um, such as, for example, the peg stability module, that's pretty well known. Uh, that was sort of proposed uh, from the forum initially uh, by uh, the Maker Foundation back in the day. Um, and I, I was actually the one that built that um, under the DAO. Uh, and so I just 
you know, took the name they put out there and it's stuck and it's well known now. Um, and it's similar, uh, I guess, uh, with the D3M. This is another product offering that's kind of well known in the broader ecosystem. D3M stands for Die Direct uh, Deposit Module. Um, this one was kind of more interesting because I, I think I, um, Stanny and I worked on that, Stanny from Ave. Uh, and so I actually initially called it a direct deposit module. And then Stanny called it the Die Direct Deposit Module, but he put in brackets D3M. And then it just sort of took off under the D3M name. And so, you know, if uh, if that's what everybody's calling it, there's no need to fight that in my view, you know, just accept it. And, you know, this is what popular parlance knows it as basically. So yeah, that's sort of how I look, look at it. Yeah, no, something's taken a life of their own for sure, right? Uh, that, that's interesting. One other thing I think that I really like to ask people in your position who see a lot of code, right? You're probably reading other people's code and your team a lot. You're, you're probably maybe for fun, like occasionally looking at other contracts and things, seeing other design patterns. Are there any optimizations, little mini instances of optimization in terms of gas uh, or like just really good, clean design patterns that you have either implemented into the maker contracts that you've seen somewhere in the maker contracts that you've seen elsewhere in the space that you wish more people would either take a look at or adopt? Uh, yeah, there's actually a number of practices and me coming from, uh, you know, video game background and stuff. Uh, this stuff is not normally uh, what you would do if you're uh, doing sort of uh, more <laughs> traditional uh, development uh, style. Um, so I think a big one actually that I find uh, is, is uh, reducing inheritance. We actually copy and paste uh, code fairly frequently. Uh, like like code says it's like, you know, admin access or something. You stick this on almost every contract, but we actually copy it into the contract itself to avoid uh, inheritance. So we do inheritance a little bit sometimes. At maximum, we'll do maybe one level if it like totally fits. But having everything... Uh, even copy paste it into one contract is like, it makes it so much easier to read. You don't have to like jump between contracts and like sort of uh, context switch mentally when you're reviewing it. Um, and so it like, it also kind of like, it, it removes a lot of these, uh, I guess, potentially mistaken assumptions you put on, uh, like when you're looking at some function that it's like, uh, I don't know, maybe like the safe transfer or something like that, right? You have all these assumptions in your head it's like it's doing all this stuff in the background and you're not like like maybe your mental model of what's going on is not exactly what's going on in the library or whatever so having the code as in line as much as possible reducing the amount of like libraries and inheritance and stuff you're pulling in i find it's just super helpful for making uh it, it readable um another thing it's like um i don't know sometimes they have mixed feelings on this but the maker uh, protocol is always kind of famous for having these weird abstract variable names that are very small. Um, I, I don't know. I kind of like it. It's, it I, I didn't necessarily like it at first, but it's been kind of growing on me just coming up with these weird abstract names like flop and flap and, you know, frob. And it's, it's I, I think it's, it's nice once you get used to it. That's cool. Yeah. Josh was sitting there going, Oh, that sounds nice to copy and paste some code <laughs> so I can read things. Yeah, it's um, so I mean I've recently started doing um, you know like security reviews and and uh, like bug bounties and things like this, right? And I've noticed like there there's a really big difference between those teams that like really hard commit to 
uh, you know, these inheritance patterns and then ones who do things like copy pasting or even, even like library patterns, right? Like I've seen, um, yeah, I've seen, I've seen heavy, heavy use of libraries to kind of, um, you know, reuse code like when possible. Right. But anytime that it's just a single contract, you don't have to jump to other files. You don't have to worry about anything else. I think that's really cool. Like, um, like soulmate does, does this very well, I think. Right. Like it's, you, you can go to each function and know exactly what happens there. Um, in terms of the, the abstract names of those variables though. So is this like, um, are these like acronyms for something that, that you kind of work with or is it, um, like, is, is there like, basically, is there an intuitive way to kind of like figure out, you know, as somebody who's reading the code, like what, what all of these variables mean? Well, I mean, I can't speak for the original, uh, uh, like variable names in the VAT and stuff like that. You know, this is the stuff of lore, uh, original DAP hub, uh, guys who are mostly off the project now, um, you know, who knows where they are, a lot of them, and they were the ones that sort of made a lot of these names. So you'll have to track them down and ask them. Um, I, I think. From my understanding, I think they're just completely abstract, but maybe kind of loosely related to what they're doing in a um, a little bit as so as much as you can, I guess. Uh, sometimes I make up names that are kind of like um, it's a little bit artistic, I guess. You're just like kind of coming up. It's this name feels like it kind of fits with the action that's going on or the variable or whatever. Um, and yeah, I, that's kind of how I do it. Cool. A little bit of like uh, arcane lore there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So a couple of final questions for you here, Sam. One that we like to ask, just because it, it tends to be interesting for people that are listening and looking for projects to work on, is you know, let, let's say that someone sits you down and says, all right, Sam, you got, you got to build smart contracts. You got to build some kind of application or you got to write code for the next six months. But for whatever reason, you can't commit any code to maker for the next six months. You got to do some other thing. Um, what would you spend your time on and what, what would you look at, at working on? Uh, yeah. So I, uh, it's pretty easy for me because like all my off maker time I spent making like MEV bots. Uh, I, I found that like really fun, just uh, super competitive. It's probably like last time I did, it was maybe a year and a half ago. So it's just a lot easier back then. Um, but it's kind of like this uh, weird uh, competitive camaraderie uh, with the other, uh, I guess the term for this is now searcher. It, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you can make some decent money doing it. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that when I was outside of Maker. That's really cool. So uh, what, what's kind of like your favorite form of this? Like, do you, did you kind of like chase long tail or more like, uh, you know, arbitrage liquidations? What, what was your uh, cup of tea? Uh, yeah, actually, it was a lot of it was centered around Maker uh, liquidation. So I mean, even though it's outside of Maker, you know, it's it's kind of related because like I have like fairly high domain knowledge uh, there. So uh, just supporting the uh, liquidation uh, system felt like a, a good fit. Um, so I've kind of worked there. But I mean, the problem is you have to be on it all the time because uh, you can maybe if you've got some alpha, you can maybe take advantage of it for a couple of weeks if people are really unaware, but, you know, eventually uh, somebody's going to have more time than you and going to be able to basically just outcompete you in one way or the other. So you have to be in it all the time. And like my, uh, like I just, I'm focused on maker mostly. So I just don't have the time to be devoting to this uh, full time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and even, I mean, coming from, you know, a bit of like a, a competitive, you know, online multiplayer uh, gaming background as well. I, I kind of see some parallels here of like, it's just this, this high speed PVP game, you know, just going back and forth. It's, it's cool stuff. 
Yeah, it's a lot of fun for sure. I mean, uh, sometimes you even get little messages uh, where you're like competing with one guy and like you're uh, like, I mean, you're just watching their EOA, see what code they deploy, kind of look at what they're doing. And sometimes you get little messages. Uh, the person's just like, uh, you beat them. And then they're like, uh, the, there's like a, they get a revert message or something. And it's like, stop front running me, you ass or something like that. <laughs> it's just fun. Yeah, there, there was a really good one on, um, oh, who did it? I want to say it was DeFi Cartel that built up that, that Salmonella token. They, they basically just wrecked like a sandwich bot. And they, and they sent a little message with some ether, you know, they're like, oh, you, you caught me sleeping or something. It's like, yeah. that's just so cool. It's so yeah, it's cool. fun. I love it. Yeah, MEV is, is fun for sure. This is a little more high level, right? This is meant to just get your high level thoughts on where we're all going as an ecosystem. Let's say that 10 years pass, it's 2032. And, you know, there's a, there's a picture of what crypto looks like in the year 2032, right? What do you hope? For this space, what do you hope for Maker? How do you, you know, how do you hope things shake out over that next decade-long period? Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, uh, there's kind of two paths. We're either successful and just the entire world economy uh, runs on blockchain and stuff like that, and it's so integrated with everything. You're just completely unaware, kind of like how the internet is right now. It just, you know, everything's on the internet, um, but you don't really notice it anymore because it's just everywhere. That's sort of the success case. Um, I, I hope we go down that route. Um, and the other scenario is sort of just we get this extreme uh, regulatory backlash or something like that. And uh, it just is forever sort of a niche uh, product. Um, I'm, I'm not super interested in that. Um, it's one way things could go, but I much prefer these sort of uh, change the world type scenario. And for Maker, uh, you know, for me, uh, I would like to see it become a credibly neutral uh, alternative to uh, the world reserve currencies of fiat today. Well, we do too. So we hope it happens. And listen, we really appreciate you, appreciate you coming on today. I think this was a fantastic, not only overview on some of the things you're working on at Maker, but also you provided a lot of insights into how you guys do things. You, you have a great engineering culture, I think, at Maker, at least that's what we see from the outside. And it, it was great to see you give some some developer specific alpha to those that that tune into this. So thank you for being here, Sam. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me.